When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tom Nankolas, who is the author of Sea Shaken Houses. And this is all about the history of the lighthouse. And we have come to an extraordinary building um, that is, in fact, London's hidden lighthouse. It's called the, or was called, the Black Wall Lighthouse. So, Tom, can you explain a little bit more about exactly where we are? Um, thanks, Helen. Well, the Blackwall Lighthouse is situated on a bend in the Thames just after the Isle of Dogs, where the River Lee joins the Thames. And for centuries, it was a place where Trinity House, uh, the lighthouse uh, body for England, Wales and the Channel Islands, um, tested their, their lighting apparatus and equipment and stored their various goods. It was like a depot. And what's absolutely fascinating about it is it's a lighthouse in the middle of London, where you would not expect to find one. Yeah, absolutely. And you can probably hear quite an extraordinary sound behind us. And that this is because there is an installation within the body of the lighthouse, which is supposed to be running for a thousand years. Can you just explain a little bit more about what that is? Yes, yeah, certainly. This was a, an installation called Long Player, um, and it began uh, running in 1999, turn of the millennium, and it's designed to run for a thousand years. It's a series of Tibetan bells, uh, which are sort of bowl-like uh, beaten bronze um, artefacts um, that are rubbed softly with uh, paddles. And th- all of this has been sequenced together with a random computer algorithm, I believe. And in doing so, it is a test of our endurance and our dedication uh, to maintain its play for over a thousand years. Wow. <laughs> and we, yeah, we were sort of discussing earlier as to how exactly it's going to go on for a thousand years. And the answer was, we're not really sure, but it's, we're going to have a go. <laughs> Okay, so this lighthouse in particular, what is its history and its significance to London? I mean, it's got the most amazing view over the River Thames. I mean, you can see Canary Wharf from here. You can see quite a distance and all of the boats kind of going up and down the river. How would that have changed over, you know, since when it was being used originally in the the 19th century? Um, Well, its uh, original use, as you say, uh, was was very much as a kind of... um, 
uh, place to test and to um, manage and operate um, new kinds of uh, lighting and navigational aids um, for England, Wales and uh, the Channel Islands lighthouses. Um, and as such, it was a very, very significant place in England. It was like a central depot um, run by Trinity House. Um, and for you know two, over two centuries, um, it had this very vital function um, until the 80s when uh, things changed and the operation was uh, reconfigured and placed elsewhere in the country. It now has a very interesting significance as a historic building because um, it is a very visible sign of this lighthouse activity, this um, aids to navigation kind of maintenance that was going on in the east east part of London, um, which you know, has all but dried up and is now longer, no longer visible except for this very um, striking architectural monument. Because it is, it is absolutely amazing. It's really striking. Um, and it, is, it does look like exactly like a lighthouse, but just in the middle of the docks in London, which nobody would really know would have existed. Um, OK, so what would have... So if we look out to the River Thames, what would have it looked like originally when the lighthouse was, being, was in full functional use? Um, well, it, that's uh, that's a lovely way of illustrating what's changed, actually. So now you, we can see um, very few craft on the Thames, uh, except the Thames clippers and tugs, you know, uh, lugging barges of, of waste products and, and building materials uh, from the capital. But when this had this lighthouse had just been finished in the 1860s, um, it was a very different picture. You had masts, rigging, ships of the line, you know, warships, uh, merchant ships, steamships, uh, which were then, you know, this sort of new technology. Um, the, the, the river would have been incredibly busy, uh, and the River Lee too, uh, alongside us here, um, with all kinds of industry and seafaring and, you know, general sort of imperial traffic um, reflecting Britain's place in the world at that time. Okay, so these really are, um, they're not just beacons of navigation, they're actually beacons of our history of trade and of the development of industry. Mm, absolutely, um, and they are now a kind of hidden history, um, what with their, their automation and subsequent uh, withdrawal of their keepers, lighthouse keepers, who for centuries courageously manned these incredible structures. The, lighthouse, the world of the lighthouse is now rather more remote from us than it ever has been, um, and the reason I have written this book, Sea Shaken the Houses, is to, to really try to reconnect, um, reconnect us with, a, with this incredible hidden history and hidden architecture. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, let's talk about the book. So, how did you come to writing about lighthouses? Uh, it was following in the footsteps of, a, of an ancestor that initially inspired you, is that right? Um, well, partially, actually. I mean, the, I had a, a very spooky, halfway through writing the book, had a very spooky uh, discovery, which was that an ancestor of mine had been involved in the deconstruction uh, of a lighthouse and the rebuilding of another on the Eddystone Reef, 13 miles out into the English Channel. Um, and this was a very strange thing to find when I'd thought I'd stumbled across this subject all by my Itself. So it originally came from a dissertation I was writing um, in my building conservation degree, and that's my profession, um, telling the stories of historic buildings across the country um, in order to prolong their lives and enrich our own, really. Um, and what I felt loved about lighthouses, what I was, what I was drawn to from the outset, um, was their remoteness, their peripheral qualities, and also the fact that incredibly sophisticated architecture could stand in the sea uh, where it, you would think a building does not belong. Yeah, exactly. So, what what is um, what is the function of a lighthouse? Say when it, when it is that far out at sea, or aside from the obvious navigational function. 
Well, it's it, it has, as you say, the navigational function is the, is the most important. Um, but what's also so important, which enables that function, is the ability to endure, the ability to withstand. And it's quite fitting here today that we're in long player listening to this sort of thousand-year-old, thousand-year-to-play piece of music, because we're talking here about towers that had to have to withstand the worst storms and that the sea can throw at them. Um, you know, you have uh, waves that equal the pressure of a wrecking ball weighing many thousands of tons, and that's really a tough brief to design for. Um, and over the course of three centuries or so, um, engineers rose to the challenge. Um, to, this was, of course, to safeguard uh, the increasing volumes of shipping coming into British waters from overseas possessions, from the empire, from other nations we were trading with. Um, and then what you had, rising on these desolate outcrops of rocks, m- many miles out to sea, were extremely fascinating, um, quite eccentric-looking prototypical towers, um, followed later by this group which exists today of beautifully engineered circular granite towers weighing many thousands of tons, um, totally handmade as well, hand-carved, hand-lowered into place, hand-built really, which is even more astonishing. And they still stand on these reefs having withstood the punishment of the seas over many centuries. It's quite amazing really. So they are sort of enduring powerhouses, but yet we don't know or, or see them. Um, how many do you think exist really on the, on the coastline of the United Kingdom? Well, around our shores, there are 20 that still stand um, of an original number of 27, which is a, a smaller, you know, a small group, really. I mean, when you think of building types like churches and banks and pubs or whatever, there are thousands of examples of those things. Um, and so what makes this group of rock lighthouses, these offshore lighthouses special, is their, their small number, the fact that they're also similar, designed from one common prototype, which is John Smeaton's third Eddystone lighthouse, which my ancestor had been involved in after it was finished. Um, this was a tower that Smeaton was a, John Smeaton was one of the first kind of civil engineers, we, we'd say today, um, living in the 18th century, and he devised a, a way of a prototype for resisting the waves, for you know, withstanding um, the, the pressures of the sea in this offshore location. He made his tower like a tree trunk, like an oak tree trunk, with the centre of gravity low in the bottom and very slender upper parts to sort of dodge the waves more effectively. And he dovetailed the pieces of masonry together, which was um, a technique used really for woodworking at the time. Um, but by carving these five-tonne granite blocks into interlocking shapes like a puzzle, he made his tower an unbreakable mass. And it was these two principles on which all of the other rock lighthouses were subsequently built, mainly in the Victorian period. And as a result, they have a uniqueness because they are a family of buildings. One begat the other, one after the other was built, you know, on these various reefs. Um, and that is, I think, another reason why they're so so compelling, why their histories deserve really to be heard. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that is how, that is, you're sort of answering the what the traditional view of the lighthouse is. I mean, if somebody is asked to draw a lighthouse, mm. that's what they draw, that sort of tree trunk mm. type shape. So you focus on seven lighthouses within your book. Out of the 20, how did you narrow it down to the seven? Um, well, it was, there were two things, really. One was practicality, access. I mean, a, another reason I was fascinated by these buildings was they're just so difficult to get to. And that's why we... That's why they're hidden. Yeah, that's why we don't know about them. So um, the seven I chose were ones that I could actually access. Um, But the other deeper reason really was that these seven lighthouses, these seven towers, seem to have seem to embody a theme very strongly that is common to all of them, 
So, for instance, I wanted to visit the Bell Rock Lighthouse, um, 11 miles off the coast of Scotland, because it shows very acutely how even an offshore structure can play a part in the story of a nation. In this case, the Bell Rock, I think, is indisputably linked with um, the rise of Scotland, um, Enlightenment era Scotland, and the development of its rational, kind of urbane, mercurial, metropolitan outlook. Um, And all of these things, all these qualities to be found in the tower itself, and they... The, the, the tower, as a result, seems to stand for the, the country that it represents, that it protects. It's like an ambassador. Um, and all of the towers, I think, I feel, have this role, but you see it most strongly in the Bell Rock. And that is why, that's how I chose the, the lighthouses in the book. And as structures, what do you think they can tell us um, about the development and the history of Britain? I know you mentioned empire, but um, is there anything else, or can you develop that a bit more? Yes, I think um, they firstly they were they were built initially, of course, to um, to protect sailors and and, and cargoes, um, more more often cargoes um, in terms of the importance, the financial importance. And interestingly, the story of the lighthouses really starts uh, with the private sector, um, and the early towers, early lighthouses were in fact developed by private individuals um, on hazards leased from the crown. So they were built for profit, in other words, which is very interesting. Um, and as um, history advanced um, and as the British sort of empire started to coalesce and as the British state started to come together, um, it became apparent that the lighthouse network needed to be taken into a single unified ownership um, and taken out of the individual hands of um, individual kind of profiteers, as it were. Um, and this happened, um, you know, gradually um, all the way up into the middle of the 19th century when you finally have a sort of cohesive publicly owned as it were publicly operated lighthouse network um, and in that story uh, I think it's it's quite interesting because you see the the, the sort of tensions between public and private ownership um, and how the sort of private sector pioneers something and then it's developed and perfected by the public sector. It's quite an interesting kind of terrestrial story that I found in these offshore structures um, but more widely also um, a lighthouse, remember, is a symbol, um, an outward-looking building type. Um, it, is, it is a symbol of fellowship, of altruism, of assistance rendered, regardless of nationality, regardless of, of, of background. You know, um, It's a light for the safety of all. Um, and I think the period where we perfected these um, structures and perfected their, their purpose... Um, I think is an, it shines an interesting light on the the sort of outlook of the time, you know, despite other things that were going on in other parts of the world, which we now realise were had you know, problematic connotations too. Okay, so they are representative of quite a significant politics. Mm. I think so, and I think just, um, I mean, I think they rep- they represent a complex state of mind, um, particularly Victorian Britain, where you had on the one hand these kind of great. Hero, like heroic narratives of uh, you know conquering something. Uh, so in these in this instance, the lighthouses conquered the sea. You know they improved the sea. The Victorian you know, idea of improvement was uh, I think very manifest in the building of these structures. Um, but at the same time, they, I don't think they they quite had the noble altruism and the simplicity of of kind of meaning which we often ascribe to them because there were other deeper layers to their history as I've just described with the you know the private origins of them and this kind of thing. So something that I think is really interesting is is who actually lived and manned these lighthouses and what sort of existence would they have led? Oh, well, it's uh, the lighthouse keepers um, were an extraordinary breed, really, who had the 
were it, it was a profession like no other, and because one was required to have the manners of a diplomat, the exactitude of an engineer, um, and the patience of a saint. Um, and these men were posted to remote places, um, and the offshore stations in particular, um, you know, they could not take their families with them, so there would just be three men in a granite tower. Um, and, you know, over the course of three centuries, this profession came to be developed into a kind of really respected calling um, where you'd have a job for life, you'd have steady progression through um, the ranks, as it were, um, and then a, a guaranteed pension, guaranteed place to live on land. So it was, it was a very desirable job, actually, in, 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 once in that sense. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there were few who could really endure it, especially on the rock lighthouses where you would have to spend two to three months living in, in a granite tower um, with the waves battering it, shaking it. And my book is called Sea Shaken Houses for this one particular uh, quality these towers have, which is they shake in heavy storms without ever collapsing um, or without any defects appearing in their exteriors. And this is a real puzzle, a real kind of paradox, I think. Um, and it certainly really tested the keeper's nerves. Um, I was fortunate enough in the writing of the book to meet um, several ex-keepers who are still with us. Um, and, you know, their, their stories and their outlook on the job that they did is very, very practical, very much a kind of no-nonsense, this is what we did, we just got on with it kind of thing. Um, and maybe that, that speaks a lot of, you know, the different kind of values of, of, an, of earlier times before ours as well. Were there any stories in particular they ha- that sort of really shook you? Well, excuse the, no, excuse the fun, shook you to your core a bit. Yeah, well, there are all sorts of things. I mean, if you go back uh, to, to early stories, you know, the reason there are three lighthouse keepers, or were, in each tower, um, is because on the Smalls lighthouse um, off the Welsh coast in the early 19th century, um, one of the two keepers on this tower died suddenly of natural causes, leaving the other in a really difficult situation because if he kept the body in the tower with the relief boat a week away, um, it would, you know, it, there would be health issues, risks and so on, not to mention the risk to his own sanity. But if he disposed of the body, then, you know, it would look suspicious, very suspicious, potentially. So he decided on a halfway solution and lashed the body to the exterior of the tower in an improvised coffin, um, which during a storm, apparently, uh, this may be an embellishment, broke open to reveal the hand of the corpse, like hitting the window of the tower as though knocking to come in. So when the relief boat, when his colleagues finally reached him in this tower, he was found completely insane. Um, And it's these kind of stories that make you think, gosh, that would have been pretty difficult. Um, But then speaking to recently, more recent uh, keepers, Think they talk very casually of things like one of them in an engine accident in the middle of the night of the night lost a finger, so had to be rowed to the Scottish mainland, which took a couple of hours to have it stitched back on, um, and just seemed to think nothing of it, you know. And it's this kind, these kinds of risks and these kinds of um, hardships, which we don't associate with our own jobs, and which I think must have really been difficult to handle. Why do you think lighthouses are so eerie and, um, yeah, they, have, they definitely have this slightly fascinating but creepy element to them? Is it just because of their remoteness? What do you think that is? I think it's, I think it's because we don't ever experience them really in the flesh. We experience them in our minds um, or, you know, maybe we see them from boats occasionally. And because of this, because of this distance that's always maintained, um, you know, our imaginations go into overdrive when it comes to this building type. Um, And I think that that is the reason why they possess this mystery. That is the reason why they can possess an eeriness too, because after all, they are doing something which should, should be impossible. They're standing out 
proud and upright in the middle of a very hostile environment where no structure you would think should survive, where nothing, where something like that shouldn't belong. And I think this, um, this kind of uh, thing that's difficult to grasp, difficult to understand and comprehend um, is what gives them that eeriness fundamentally, but also that sublimity as well. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, and what was your experience of staying in a lighthouse like? Oh, it was absolutely fascinating. So I was very fortunate to spend five nights um, inside the Fastnet Lighthouse off the coast of Ireland, which is eight miles south, um, with two Irish lighthouse engineers um, who were incredibly friendly, really generous with their time and their wisdom. Um, but in, in, in staying in this tower, in, in spending five days and five nights walking up and down the steep gunmetal stairs, um, listening to the waves thud against the you know the six feet thick granite base, um, I was able to really get under the skin of, a, of this building in a way which I could never have done from the land, uh, I could never have done through books, um, or even through the most uh, tan- sort of pungent reminiscences of former keepers. And I realised that um, being inside a, one of these things for any length of time is to live a kind of circular life, because you're always moving in circles, you're going up and down like a, like a yo-yo or a pendulum, um, and everything around you is circular and your routine because you seem to settle into routine much like the the keepers were is circular because it's you know you you are dictating dictated by the clock and so i think there was just this lovely kind of constant theme this very simple circularity to life inside this tower um i'm sure the keepers would probably think i was talking rubbish um but uh, i did think it was just very very beautiful in its simplicity and their role today how much do you think that's changed um, since I mean, over the last hundred years, were the practical func- were the practicalities of day to day life still very much the same, or has it developed significantly? Do you mean in the function of the lighthouses? The function of the people who were um, oh, who maintain there. them today? Yeah, yeah well, because uh, now they're no longer inhabited. They it's sort of. Uh, Occasional maintenance visits, and in that in that way, the the, the connection these towers had with the land has, has now sort of lessened quite significantly and, and and slimmed almost to a thread. Part of the reason for writing the book, in fact, was to try and uh, 
strengthen this connection to 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 bring it into the public eye again really um, in terms of the way they're, they're maintained and the way they're operated now um, you know it's done in a very kind of modern and very kind of simple straightforward way but I would say that their relevance as as aids to navigation as, as functioning um, lighthouses is as important as it ever was and um, when you think that everything that we consume pretty much comes by sea um, we may fly most places these days but actually container ships and shipping uh, are really incredibly important and you know sat nav things like that are not fail safes and um, whereas you know thousands of tons of granite protecting a light in the middle of the sea is about as fail safe as you can get yeah i mean is there is there was there anything that um sorry <laughs> suddenly was like wow that's really incredible was there anything that really surprised you about the lighthouses when you were researching them well, yes, I think the, the biggest surprise I had, um, apart from this family connection I, I mentioned earlier, which was just really, really weird and coincidental, or maybe not, as the case may be, was that uh, a lighthouse could be haunted, an offshore structure could be haunted. Um, and I found this um, on a visit to the Hall Bowline Lighthouse um, in the Carlingford Lock um, in, in Ireland, between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Um, when we visited this tower, um, we found trace of an exorcism that had been performed in the 50s by a parish priest from the northern shore. And apparently, I heard later, the uh, keepers on the tower had been convinced that it, it was haunted, um, various phenomena, um, strange lights, etc., eerie noises, and so had demanded the priest come over and consecrate it, thereby driving out the demons. And I found this fascinating because, you know, hauntings generally happen in places where which have been populated where where you know there is potential for grisly events or dark happenings but a lighthouse surely you know is is one of the least populated human spaces ever so it seemed a weird paradox that this this could have happened but also chilling because the last thing i'd probably want is to be stuck in a granite tower offshore with a with a ghost you know um and that was so that was really surprising i think it's pretty apt that we're recording this quite close to halloween with these kind of really weird little noises going on in the background gosh that that is amazing and it must have been terrifying like quite a terrifying existence for people who were living there because you did touch on this idea of you know mental health and this idea of isolation but also so there's like a, a physical threat from the sea but, and, and the engineering within the lighthouse, but also there is that fear of loneliness. How, were there any sort of specific coping techniques for people or were they really just forced to, as you say, get on with it? Well, it's in, it's, I'd say there was always a sense of, right, let's get on with it, stiff up a lip kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, mental health, of course, wasn't talked about then as much as it is now in, in terms of trying to you know, address it as a problem. I think hobbies were the way that it was addressed. You know, when you're offshore in a granite tower and you have, like, five hours to, to kill, um, it's inevitable that hobbies would, would develop. And lots of the keepers um, were really keen model makers, bird watchers. Some even were taxidermists, which is bizarre. I don't know how they managed to do that offshore, but there we are. Um, fishermen, etc. And I think it was these kinds of simple kind of... Uh, partly repetitive but partly kind of um, meditative tasks that really helped to kind of um, avoid too, too, too great a risk of, of depression and this, other, this kind of thing. But then there is, um, there is a dark side to this whole story because um, inevitably there were some who just couldn't 
take the pressure um, that these these jobs demanded. And Tony Parker, an oral historian who was operating in Britain in the 70s, um, did some interviews with lighthouse keepers who were then working because they were then still manning the stations. All sorts of fairly dark stories of you know depression, alcoholism, um, uh, divorce, this kind of stuff. So no, it was a it was really tough, I think, and we shouldn't underestimate that. But it was also extraordinary, and her, some of the richest and oddest human kind of experiences are to be found offshore, these stories tell us. So aside from this particular lighthouse, how accessible are they for people today? Well, the um, the coastal lighthouses are the best place to start. So there are about 150, maybe more, coastal lighthouses in Britain, uh, Ireland, Channel Islands, etc. And, you know, you can, it's quite easy to get to those. You can, you know, wander down a, a cliff path. I wouldn't go too close because they are on cliffs and, you know, there is a, a risk there. Um, but you can see them and you can see, uh, you can get a sense, a flavour of what lights and lighthouses are. But you see, the thing with those is they're much like any other building, really. Um, four walls, roof, rooms inside, you know, a little tower with the light on it. Um, and as such, you know, they are quite conventional in, in architectural terms. And what really drew me to the offshore towers, the, the subjects of the book, was their architectural uniqueness, because it's that they seem like the kind of truest, um, most lighthousey lighthouses, if you see what I mean, and because they are so uniquely designed to resist the pressures of the sea and of the land. So your job sort of day-to-day day as an architectural um, conservationist and an historian, what was it exactly about the structure of the lighthouse that you found particularly um, baffling and particularly uh, fascinating? I think it would be the, um, the way that they are dovetailed together, the way that each building block interlocks with the other, both at first just laterally, so side to side, but later laterally and vertically. So what you have is a jigsaw puzzle, um, effectively, one that's massive, 140, 60, 70 feet tall, weighing many thousands of tonnes. And I think the, the thing, what was so interesting about that was, was this kind of complete difference in alien quality when compared to buildings on land, um, but also the way that they were constructed, because you know, as well as the keepers, there is another human element to this story, and that is the engineers and the labourers who built these things. Um, and to to cart these large five-ton blocks of stone across the sea, to assemble them on a, a grisly sort of grim reef that has had to have been flattened um, previously by pickaxes, um, to assemble these one on top of the other in their interlocking forms, in their interlocking ways, um, all the way up to the top, seems like the greatest, most profound act of building, of construction that there could possibly be. Um, and that was really what grabbed me from the outset. Um, there's a lovely story which sums it up, I think. The building of the last tower, the Fastnet, which is the one I stayed in, um, was remarkable for its single person, single human that actually really did this. And this was a man called James Kavner, the master mason on the project. And he insisted on setting every stone of the tower in place with his bare hands, assisted, of course, by teams of labourers and, and ropes and pulleys. And his dedication to this build was so great that he lived, spent seven years living in a damp cave um, with his labourers, who sensibly went home more frequently. Um, he went home occasionally, of course, at Christmas or whatever, but he spent the most, most part of seven years on this rock, um, setting every stone of this lighthouse in place with his bare hands. Um, and then when he finished the build, when it was completed, the shell was, was ready... He went home to County Wicklow 
um, where he crossed the threshold of his cottage and dropped down dead of a stroke, as though the seven years that he had spent on this rock, this damp rock, um, that were pent up inside him had just crashed through the nervous system. He was given a hero's burial in Wicklow, and it's just, for me, that story sums up how personal um, these projects were to their builders um, and how profound the act of building on these rocks was. So these really are incredible structures with an incredible history, but as you say, they're largely hidden, they're largely forgotten about. Do you think that they're under threat now? I think they remain very relevant, um, in the certainly in the short to midterm, um, as navigational aids. Um, I think also that their structural integrity, which has been examined by a recent scientific survey, has proven to be incredibly stable and just as resilient as it ever was. Interestingly, the Victorians who design most of the ones that still survive had no detailed scientific studies of wave loading or wave pressure. They just threw as much masonry as they could at the problem and hoped for the best, basically. And it's amazing that their their achievements, their risks, if you like, have actually stood the test of time and been scientifically proven to work. I mean, in the... And again, really appropriate that we're here listening to long player. In the context of thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years, who can say? Um, and potentially... As, as with all buildings, the greatest risk is that they will fall out of use um, because once a building is disused, then it becomes twice as vulnerable to its surroundings, its elements and so on. And this is why we need to pay more attention to these rock lighthouses and to think of them a bit more than we currently do because they are so extraordinary and they deserve to, to endure you know, as long as they possibly can. Absolutely agreed. And if you have more of an interest in lighthouses, please do go and buy Tom's um, brilliant book, Sea Shaken Houses, which is beautifully written. It's a lovely narrative history of the lighthouse. And is there anywhere else that you can suggest people go to? Do you mean on land or on sea? Uh, well, there's um, another place which was incredibly helpful to me in writing the book was a place called the Arbroath Signal Tower Museum, um, which is in the town of Arbroath um, in Scotland. Um, it's an incredible museum about the Bell Rock, the oldest of the tower lighthouses still standing on its reef, shining a light. And it's an incredible place with lots of uh, really good exhibits that tell you a very, very vi- vivid and immediate story um, of the construction of this lighthouse and its, um, and its subsequent operation well worth a visit and you really get a flavour of what this business was all about there. Wonderful and what about you what are you working on next? Well I mean I have various interests in difficult architecture as you can imagine from this book and yeah I'm exploring a number of ideas based around the architecture of different realms I suppose different places which are just as inhospitable as the sea. Wonderful and are you on Twitter or any social media that people can follow you on? Uh, Yes I am on Instagram. If you search for my name, uh, I should appear. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much, Tom, and we look forward to having you you back. Thank you very much for having me. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.